As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Archaeo Animals, the podcast all about zoo archaeology. And with you as always is me, Simona Falanga, and me, Alex Fitzpatrick. Right, I mean, for today's episode, we will be journeying to a place that many archaeologists, mostly Alex, me, yes, me. <laughs> many others too, fear to go, which um, the land of amphibians. Yeah, because, like, let's be real, unless you're a really specialized archaeologist or you're, like, working in a really specific context with very specific research questions, I think most of us are just going to be happy to identify them as, oh, okay, those are amphibian bones, and then move on to the quote-unquote cooler, quote-unquote more important stuff. Ooh, dishing them out so early. Oh, <laughs> Okay, hot take by Alex, less, just over a minute in. Excellent. Ew, I said quote unquote, so I'm not really saying myself, that's my own opinion, but that's like the vibe, you know? First she upsets the fish, then it's the frogs. There's not yeah. like there's much difference between the two, let's be real. Oh boy. Uh, <laughs> we've had a compared to fish, amphibians walk in the park, but to be fair, no, Amphibian bones tend to be quite distinctive in the way that, yes, easy enough to tell that they're amphibian. Identified to species, uh, there's going to be a lot of like a frog slash toad. I'm sure if any of the listeners will remember the, the sheep goat that we keep mentioning sort of in various episodes on domesticates. It's very much the case for frog slash toad too. So, you know, as we like to always mention, Simone and I are based in the UK. So we have a very specific kind of perspective. And for British zoo archaeologists, it's it's kind of a game of numbers anyway, when it comes to caring about amphibian bones, because Britain actually has seven native species of amphibian. So there's the natterjack toad. Epidalia calamita. Thank I'm you guessing I'm doing the species name here. The common toad. Bufo bufo. <laughs> is that like supposed to be the noise they make possibly i thought you paused so that you could get ready to do a really good toad impression (laughs) no no i'll I'll leave those for tristan 
Ribbit, ribbit. No, it's buffo buffo. We just said buffo, this. Buffo buffo. We yeah, just said sorry. it. I don't know. We teed you I'm, up. <laughs> honestly, is this all I'm here for? Is to say buffo buffo on cue? I'm not a performing toad. You are a buffoon. <laughs> You're apparently Java as well. Amazing. Uh, the other amphibians. Yeah, that would have the common frog, Rana temporaria, the pool frog. Pelophylax lessone, the great crested newt, Triturus chrysatus, the smooth newt, Lysotriton vulgaris, and the palmate newt, Lysotriton helveticus. Although, just a quick aside, I did look up buffo buffo, and I mean, it is the Latin for toad. I cannot comment whether it's anomatopoeic. Hmm, I think it is. But if any of you know, please let us know. Though, I mean, like, to be fair, I mean, in Britain, we do have these seven sort of native species of amphibian. However, really, the bulk of what you get archaeologically are the common frog and the common toad. Usually, if you can't tell between the two, it's a frog slash toad, realistically. Yeah, and again, realistically, if you are a zooarchaeologist or even an archaeologist stuck with doing your, your animal bones fine report... You're really going to only need to know as far as is it an amphibian, for the most part. That being said, of course, we should give credit to amphibian remains when it's due. They can actually tell us a lot about past environments. And of course, depending on where you're working in, they actually may have additional information about culture or the economy as, you know, in various places amphibians have a very specific cultural or economic value. Indeed. So they actually, they're a quite crucial part of paleoenvironmental reconstruction, which we will cover in the near future. But we thought, again, as a sort of another mini series of sorts, but like sort of look at all the various species and like uh, animal orders that you'd mainly use for a paleoenvironmental reconstruction as far as zoo archaeology is concerned. The teeny tiny bitty bits. Not sure if you want to include mollusks into that. No, let's not include mollusks. No, 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 I'm putting my foot down. We will not do mollusks. Well, we probably will when we run out of things to talk about. But for now, we won't be doing mollusks because we're doing amphibians and they've got bones. They do. I mean, it's a quick recap. Amphibians, I mean, they are members of the taxonomic class amphibia and are vertebrates who are also ectothermic, that is, cold-blooded. Unlike mammals, amphibians are oviparous, that is, they lay eggs, and more specifically, they like to lay them in water, as you do, when then their young are hatched as aquatic larvae with gills and eventually developed into sort of fully-fledged land-dwelling tetrapods as adults with lungs and everything. Yeah, so they're a really interesting type of animal, specifically for zooarchaeologists, where, you know, our whole thing is looking at animal bones, because they go through such a huge transformation during their lifetimes. So, you know, skeleton-wise, the amphibian larvae, which are basically tadpoles, they start out with a more cartilaginous kind of skeleton before it eventually ossifies into the skeleton that we expect from vertebrates. Yeah, it's actually like very nice to witness as well, because I don't know who amongst you have access to a pond or have a pond in the gardens. Chances are like frogs will readily sort of populate it. So I got to witness it myself because I have 
frogs in my garden. I can see all the little eggs and then the tadpoles and then slowly, you know, they start getting a tail and the limbs start coming out and turn into little froglets. So it's, it's, it's quite nice. That or I have no hobbies, you know. I thought you were going to say maybe, I know this is something they do in the UK as someone who has worked in the school system here. And obviously I'm from America, but we've like had tadpoles in our classrooms. Like, did you get, did you do that at all? I know we never did that in school. I think they do it in Britain, though. I think it is a thing. They do, yeah. Um, I've, yeah. As somebody who went to a British school, yeah, I think I think it was in my set, like the secondary school. Like, I don't remember it being primary school. So I know of it happening, but I don't even remember it happening in one of my classes. So I know of it. So that's that's the best I can give you. We did it in like fourth grade, I think. So how old are you like nine and some kids got to take home i think like some kids got to take home the extras because my neighbor took home like a whole box of tadpoles and of course they all died horrifically because why would you trust a nine-year-old to take care of frogs but i mean i guess that's it's kind of fun i don't know we also kept butterflies it's a whole thing american schools they are fascinating anyway adult amphibian skeletons extremely weird to be honest characteristic yes but weird because even though they may be kind of you can kind of tell it's an amphibian bone if you're just kind of looking at it really fast if you have it very fragmented or just random bits and pieces here and there because of the size and the fact that they are quite hollow it's pretty easy to mistake them for bird bone at least if you're you're me and you kind of just got a, a tiny brain to deal with this kind of stuff also because I guess the way to differentiate, say, mammalian bones from bird bones is that bird bones also look weird. Mm, yeah. And then you have amphibian bones that look diff- weird, but a different type of weird. <laughs> I, mean, like, I guess like, amphibians have their own sort of like giveaways. I mean, like the yeah. vertebrae tend to be quite variable between species, but they tend to be quite difficult to differentiate, you know, whether it's caudal versus thoracic or precaudal, etc. But for Alex's delight... Frogs don't have ribs. Which I didn't know, which may be ridiculous to not know as a 29-year-old with a PhD, but I just never really thought about it until we started doing the episode notes for this episode. And then I was like, oh my gosh, they don't have ribs. What? (laughs) I'm smart. I'm really smart, guys. (laughs) That's not the most surprising thing you've discovered, you know, ever since we broke it to you. Okay, listen. (laughs) This anti-immigrant rhetoric against people who don't notice squirrels needs to stop. (laughs) Was it raccoons you thought were here? Because we don't have raccoons. I mean, there was probably like a year when I was like, where are all the raccoons? But I got over it. Gosh, no, no, no room for growth on this podcast. Sometimes some people just don't notice squirrels. There are dozens of us. (laughs) But I guess few sort of giveaways that scream amphibian uh, <laughs> personally um the radio ulna and the tibia fibula i think they're the dead giveaways for amphibians because they just look so different from anything else and now like they look nothing like so the radius and the ulna <laughs> or tibia fibula for mammals but they're fused together and it's almost like this double barrel bone 
Okay, yeah. It's the best way I can explain it. Sort of, it's a double barrel bone. The radio ulna, of course, will be squatter, like slightly shorter. The tibia fibula will be a little bit more elongated. The cranial bones I'm not going to get into, but you'll have to see them. <laughs> yeah, you know, like the way the frog looks, like their head, that's, yeah, that's basically what their cranium looks like. It looks like a little D shape. That is, if you find like small parts of like various cranial bones, and those are a treat. But I guess, again, in terms of things, a scream amphibian, and again, I'm talking mainly about frogs and toads, because those are the ones that you tend mostly tend to find sort of in British archaeology. The femur kind of looks like a clavicle. It's got that slight sort of S shape to it. But I think that the ilium sort of is quite, is quite characteristic in frogs and toads, where you get the acetabulum, so like that's the um, articulation sort of with the femoral head. And then there's like just a process that comes straight out. So again, it looks nothing like a mammalian pelvis, but that's again like a dead giveaway for amphibian and then sort of a common frog. The process has kind of a crest to it, while in toad it doesn't. It's the best I can do to illustrate something Via sound. Yeah, I mean, you know, and it, it doesn't help that they're just weird looking, to be completely honest. And, you know, it's something that I've never, like I said, never really thought about because of where we work and the kind of things you put emphasis on when it comes to what you're doing. You know, if you're working on a site that's got loads of different species, no offense to amphibians, but they're usually kind of last in line when it comes to what I care about the most. Yeah, I guess if you're reporting on it, you look at all of the species all the same, be it mammalian, fish, amphibian, still going to give it your best. But, you know, um, it's, it's, it's at least useful to know what they look like. For the most part, but like I feel like even you know it's not like we have that many comparative species, and I think that's kind of the case for across the board when it comes to like having comparative material to use for identifications. Obviously, you can get loads of domesticates and whatnot, but especially in certain places in the world, a lot of amphibians are kind of you know endangered or in risk of being endangered so it's even more difficult to kind of get that comparative material yeah because that includes a fair few of the amphibians here yeah so, like you have to mainly rely on manuals and of course there's only so far a manual goes because the illustration while very helpful and brilliant doesn't always substitute the comparative material but yeah, yeah I guess it's, it's one of those things and yeah it's tough <laughs> i mean that's that's the, the moral of today's episode it's tough but I think we're going to take a break and then when we come back, we will talk a bit about some amphibians around the world and why they're so weird and what we can do with them zooarchaeologically. And we are back with archaeo animals, and today we're talking about the zooarchaeology of amphibians, frogs, toads, all that fun, weird stuff that I don't really know that much about. So... The first part, we talked a bit about what amphibians broadly are and what makes their bones, for lack of a better word, so peculiar. But what about specific species? So kind of, it's not really case studies, but I guess they kind of are. Let's just take a quick look through some amphibians of note from around the world. And I feel like the best way to start that off is to go with one of the biggest ones, the Chinese giant salamander. Andreas Davideanus. So yeah, 
one of the largest amphibians in the world and kind of ties into what we were saying in the last part of the last part uh that it's unfortunately an endangered species due to the fact that there's a lot of habitat loss and exploitation as it's often used not only as a food source, but also as part of traditional Chinese medicine. And that also just reminded me that I feel like with amphibians in particular, they more, more likely than a lot of other species or, you know, taxa get hit with habitat loss more so just because of the places they usually end up living in. And I guess the thing with amphibians, again, they have such sort of niche environments that they like to live in, which incidentally is also why they're so great for paleoenvironmental reconstruction. Mm, yeah. So unfortunately that ends up putting them on kind of endangered species lists more so than maybe other types of animals. So yeah, obviously, you know, conservation is quite important for amphibians, but particularly for the giant the giant, the Chinese giant salamander. Sorry, that name is a mouthful. Um, but what's really particularly interesting about the Chinese giant salamander is that it's actually considered to be a living fossil. Which I don't even know if we've really talked about living fossils on this podcast. I mean, technically, it's not really zoo archaeology, but I feel like it counts. I guess, like, my, my gut reaction is that's not very nice calling someone a living fossil. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's in. You know, Ecologically, a really important thing, isn't it? So a, a living fossil is basically a living member of a taxon that's been existent for an extremely long time, like extremely long time, thousands and thousands and millions of years. And yet they still retain much of their characteristics. So they haven't really evolved or changed that much. So for example, um, coelacanths, uh, I think are, are probably a, the most well-known living fossil as a, and so yeah, the, the Chinese giant salamander is considered one of these living fossils, particularly of the family Cryptobrachidae. This is why I need you, Simona. Cryptobrachidae. It's a cryptid, I guess, technically. Okay, our next one is also a mouthful, is the axolotl. Ambistoma mexicanum. Okay, it wasn't too bad. Which is a salamander that is unique in the fact that it remains aquatic rather than going through the sort of metamorphosis, so to speak, that other amphibians go through. The name axolotl actually comes from the deity Xolotl, who was worshipped during the Aztec Empire, where axolotls... Oh, that's becoming a drinking game now. <laughs> <laughs> where, like, so under the Aztec Empire, these creatures were commonly eaten. And still are eaten today. One of the most interesting characteristics, I guess, of axolotls from a zooarchaeological perspective is the fact that it is able to regenerate various body parts, whether it be limbs, tails, spinal cord, even eyes and parts of the brain, which is uh, a thing. It's interesting because, again, amphibians are a very funny taxon. Uh, taxa, I guess, really, in that they have these unique characteristics. And again, because, you know, I haven't really worked with them per se, zooarchaeologically, there's all these kind of weird characteristics that I'm not even sure really show up in the zooarchaeological record. So before we were talking about, you know, this process of ossification and, you know, how 
the bones go from being cartilaginous in most amphibians to becoming ossified and kind of, you know, the proper bones that we see in vertebrates. And, you know, I, I, I didn't really look, but I'm not sh- sure if there's really been able to find evidence of, say, like tadpoles in the zooarchaeological record. I don't think they'd survive very well unless the conditions were very specific. Yeah, because I guess you get like, you get a very anaerobic environment and like a waterlogged samples or something. <sighs> it's yeah. I mean, I guess we have stories of a lot of very strange things surviving. I mean, we had a few episodes ago, we talked about that, was it a fish, a a fossilized fish that the heart was still fossilized and they were able to recover it? Oh, and this was like ages ago, folks. (laughs) Um, But, you know, there's, archaeology is funny. There is, if you have that like one less than one percent chance of the environment being just so you you'd be surprised at the things that can actually survive so i guess i mean i'm trying to think about cartilage and whether or not that something cartilaginous could survive not easily but i guess maybe if it started to ossify because it's not quite the same but you know sometimes in cattle and horse, you do get some of the ossified sort of cartilage in the ribs, and you do get that occasionally. It's funny. It's weird. And so the thing about the axolotl is that it, it goes through a very similar process. So if a limb was, you know, cut off for some reason or a tail, the way that they regenerate these body parts, at least the the things like limbs and tails that have bone is that it does a very similar process where, you know, it, it, I believe it goes, it develops through the osteoblasts and slowly but surely ossifies into a new body part. I tried reading this to kind of be able to explain it and then realize it was extremely complicated and it was probably easier just to say they regenerate because that is ultimately what they do. But I guess realistically, you could potentially find an axolotl remains that were maybe partially regenerated. Yeah, I guess like, um, I mean, not quite limbs, but you have like some lizards that can regenerate tails. But I don't think they can regrow lost limbs compared to our friend, the axolotl. Axolotl. You you know what's what's funny about the axolotl? What? It is super cute. So if anyone listening doesn't know what an axolotl looks like, please look it up. She looks like a Pokemon or something. The axolotl used to be a character in Animal Crossing. Of course. It was a, and you know, it was, it's funny that you say it's funny because it was, he was a comedian whose name now escapes me, which makes me feel bad because I thought he was funny. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Forgive me, whoever you are. Forgive me, Animal Crossing fans. I'm not a true fan, uh, despite sinking like 900 hours into that game. But yeah, they're very cute. I think they're adorable. And I wish we lived in a place where we came across axolotls uh, zooarchaeologically, because that would be cool. Yeah, basically, it kind of looks like a, 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 a newt, but it's pale pink, so like a naked newt. And it's got some sort of headgear going, like fluffy headgear. <laughs> And the way that their their mouths are set, it looks like they're smiling all the time. Just like then the goggly eyes. Ugh, they're so cute. They are really cute. 
cute. We should do an episode where it's just the zoology of cute things. Yeah, I mean, if anyone wants to hear that, please write to us, tweet to us, and uh, we'll get going. Tweet at us, send a, a carrier pigeon, let us know. Because, again, we will run out of episode ideas at some point. I mean, it's only been, what, nearly five years now? Yeah, you know, we're going to make it a ten. Anyway, not moving that far from the the home of the axolotl, uh, another amphibian from Mexico is the Bigfoot leopard frog. (laughs) (laughs) Lithobathus megapoda. Also known as the Bigfooted leopard frog. So... Got variety there. And I guess the theme for, for this section has been like big boys because the Bigfoot leopard frog, based on its name, you could probably guess, they are massive frogs. They're so massive that a single frog can provide 300 grams of flesh, which is extremely important as these frogs have historically been used as subsistence. So it's a big, big, chunky boy. Hecking big boy. Hecking big boy. And it's actually quite interesting, though. So zooarchaeological research that has been undertaken at the site of Laguna de Magdalena in Jalisco, Mexico, has revealed the importance of these frogs in the diets of the indigenous peoples during uh, both the pre-Hispanic and the colonial occupations of this site. And it seems like the exploitation of these frogs was at its most intensive during the latter periods, during the colonial occupation. And, you know, we talk a lot about how you kind of interpret things as archaeology. So it probably doesn't come as a surprise to know that this was mostly interpreted due to the predominance of hind limb bones, as it was likely that these were the part of the frog that was the most choice for cuisine. And similarly, that's kind of how frogs are still eaten today. And another kind of evidence that they've used to have this interpretation of the importance of the frog is that the frog has seems to be used a lot in mortuary figures and iconography and other kinds of material culture, which is always really important to know. Simona, have you ever eaten frogs? No. I mean, you're not missing much. They're not, I've never really found them that exciting. Although I might have just had like really not well prepared frogs. I don't know, because I, I seem to have heard somewhere that they taste like chicken, but it just seems like they the do. most meats. Like everyone says, oh, it tastes like chicken. It it does though. I think I've heard that for a variety of different things. It's like, like fishy chicken. Yeah, I mean, they, they, it does though. Like it's just kind of... Again, I might have just had really bland frog because I I think it was kind of just like it just tasted like boiled chicken, which I was just like, that's whatever. But it's interesting to kind of, you know, I, I, I didn't even think about it until we were doing this episode. Like, of course, you would if people were eating frogs, you would find mostly the hind limb bones because that's what you eat. You eat the frog legs. And I guess, yeah, they are kind of they're pretty meaty i guess you know they gotta jump they got muscle i don't know i'm not just not the biggest frog food fan i'm a frog fan but not a food fan of frogs yeah you you like frogs alive in their ponds 
Yes, I don't. I don't want them in my zooarchaeological assemblage. I don't want them on my plate. I want them in a pond somewhere, having a, a great time. <laughs> I, I, I second that. But yeah, I mean, it's again, it's also one of those things that I wanted to kind of bring up the the material culture of the Bigfoot leopard frog because, give again, given. The fact that not everyone's trained in identifying amphibians, that they're kind of hard to identify. And to be honest, I haven't, we haven't really touched upon this, but, you know, it's the case of a lot of these type of bones. They're fragile. They're easily kind of destroyed or otherwise misplaced from the archaeological record. So having the material culture to back it up is really important. I mean, we, we do it for most other things, really, when we talk about like cultural depictions of animals and their importance. You know, you have the zooarchaeological record, but you also have the kind of material record as well to back it up. But I think with amphibians and with animals that are easily missed in the archaeological record, I think it's quite important that we utilize these things. Because I guess a lot of it comes down as well to your excavation strategy. Because if you if you're not taking any environmental samples, you're you're not gonna find amphibian remains. Because who's gonna dig something and spot like a frog radio owner at the bottom of their ditch or something? You're like, ooh, and hand collect that one. It's very unlikely to happen <laughs> unless you've literally got your face like in the dirt. So like, really, it only comes through sort of processing or like environmental samples if those are taken yeah so it's it can be tricky and again i think that's the theme of this episode it's tricky it's hard they're annoying you find them but if you do find them if you are able to identify them and you're actually able to utilize them to their potential they can really inform the paleo environmental history i guess yeah so they're, they're as as difficult as they can be rewarding yes that's a, a much more succinct way of what i was trying to say so i think we will take a quick break and then we will go to again no one said it it's just us but whatever it's our favorite part of the show the case studies so we'll see you then see you then and we are back with Archaeo Animals, the show all about zooarchaeology. And today we are talking about the zooarchaeology of amphibians, your frogs, your toads, your, what am I forgetting, newts? Newts and everything in between. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we know amphibians, as you can clearly tell. But yeah, it's the best part of the show, folks. It's the case studies. And the first case study, I realized while deciding on doing this case study, have we talked about Mesopotamia at all on this show? Um, I think we probably like touched upon it sort of when it came to domestication, perhaps. Mm, yeah, probably. Yeah, of course they must have. It just struck me as kind of funny, especially I, I. I've said this on the show before, but I did my undergraduate in classical archaeology, so I did Egyptian, Mesopotamian, Assyrian. Well, that's Mesopotamian. Um, I did all those uh, Anatolian 
Greek, Roman, oh, but, all that, that fun fall, stuff. That fall under classical. Yeah, I mean, I, it was a bit, you know, loose and with the the phrase, I guess. But yeah, that was all I did. Um, it was very intense that of my undergraduate, but I mean, it was good for me because it realized that I hate ar- classical archaeology and I find it kind of boring. But it's handy, I guess, to have in general for like an intro to archaeology type of thing. Yeah, I suppose. So yeah, we, we I I did do do a little bit of Mesopotamian archaeology, but just to kind of give a, a brief summary in case listeners don't know what Mesopotamia is. So it refers to a region in Western Asia between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers, and it includes various cultures that you may have heard of, such as the Sumerians, the Akkadians, the Assyrians, and the Babylonians. And this kind of region had activity and occupation occurring from 10,000 BC to about the 7th century AD. Now, this area has also been referred to as the Fertile Crescent, which was important to the development of agriculture in the early Neolithic. Obviously, you had those two rivers, right? And the um, area of the Fertile Crescent would be between these two rivers, and that would obviously help agriculture come to fruition. Ha ha, wordplay. I'm very funny. Everyone loves it. Um, And that's probably why we did, if we did talk about Mesopotamia, it was probably because of domestication. A lot of things came from Mesopotamia in that sense. It's also, I mean, not zooarchaeological related necessarily, but that's also where we have the first evidence of writing. That's yes. the case. Yeah, the Sumerian. It's a lot of um, interesting stuff. The different cultures are very interesting. I was a big fan of the Lama Sioux sculptures, which if if you are, live near a big national museum in the global north, you know, any country such as the United States or the United Kingdom, they probably have one of these. There are these big kind of statues of like a dude with a beard and he's like a griffin body. They're, they're really cool. I used to love visiting the one at the Metropolitan in Manhattan. So yeah, Mesopotamia, pretty cool. But more importantly, they're all about frogs too. Because what else did those very important rivers provide? They provided frogs. Lots of them. So much so that they became culturally important, not just due to their commonality, because they were literally everywhere, but also due to their associations with kind of the life-giving power of the river. So in other words, frogs in Mesopotamia were likely associated with fertility, healing, cleansing, and transformation. I mean, further evidence of these associations can actually be found in the prevalence of frog and toad as well, iconography and amulets, as well as the use of frog remains in medicine. So these um, these frog amulets that I just mentioned, they're usually made of materials that were known, known to be culturally significant, like lapis lazuli. Um, the most often, these were found in grave goods, but also in temples, palaces, and also like private, so domestic dwellings. And based on the translated text, because as Simona said, Mesopotamia is where we have like the earliest evidence of writing. So it's one of those very rare occasions where we actually have a wealth of texts that we can translate and kind of get a better idea of, say, rituals, of medicinal approaches to things. So yeah, based on these translated texts, we know that frogs were actually used as scapegoats in ritual 
So this is actually was a great case study because it touched on a lot of my undergraduate because I also did a degree in anthropology and, you know, they're all about talking about ritual and stuff like that. Fun, fun times. And, you know, we, we learned a lot about scapegoats. So scapegoats and ritual usually means that it's a person or a thing, an object, some something where you misdirect something else from happening from a patient to that thing. So say, you know, you don't want to get cursed by someone. You use a scapegoat and kind of put that curse onto the scapegoat rather than the, the patient. Now, in the case of Mesopotamia, it seems like frogs were used as scapegoats in that disease was transmitted from a patient to the frog, which makes me kind of feel bad for the frog because, you know, what did they do to deserve that? The other interesting thing with Mesopotamia is that the researchers who worked on the, the frogs in general, kind of working on the cultural importance of frogs, uh, they actually utilize herpetological information with textual evidence because there was a bit of an issue in that they they were getting frog remains, but they weren't getting a lot of frog remains and they were having trouble identifying them. So they, what they ended up doing was actually getting using modern day herpetological information uh, and comparing it to textual evidence to kind of get a feel for what the species were were most predominant in these rituals and these medicinal uses. And obviously, there's a bit of problematic aspects as to that because, you know, things change over time. But it seems like that the frogs that were most referred to in these texts were is probably the marsh frog. Pelophylax ridibundus. So it's a, it's a weird, interesting workaround to zooarchaeological interventions i guess i mean it's not necessarily that different from what we do in that a lot of times when we use comparative material it's modern day but yeah they like looked up you know because these texts are like so specific they would talk about like where they would get them when they would get the frogs what they looked like and they were able to kind of narrow down the species based on that which is kind of cool yeah so our second right. so, case study uh, for is... our second case studies, okay. we're, uh, study, we're bringing it back home to Britain. <laughs> we'll be discussing Pinhole Cave. The Pinhole Cave is... Uh, what a cave? That is located within the Cresswell Crags of England. So that's on the Nottinghamshire-Derbyshire border. And it's actually a series of caves that I... It's a altogether are a hugely important prehistoric site. I mean, we have evidence of animals spanning like tens of thousands of years. We have evidence of human occupation. We have evidence of Neanderthal occupation. Like you name it, they've got it there at Creswell Crags. And it is also important because we have one of the few, if not the only evidence of cave art in Britain. There you go. Pretty cool. And the site overall, as you'd expect, has been hugely important to understand past environment through zooarchaeology and environmental archaeology. Because one of the big, big issues has been sort of the identification of small vertebrates, including amphibians. As such, very little analysis has been done on the amphibian remains from Pinhole Cave. However, that has changed recently because some recent work using zooms <laughs> may have helped to resolve some of these issues. Right. Quick reminder, this, um, what I'm 
talking about when I say zooms is actually zooarchaeology by mass spectrometry, which is also known as collagen fingerprinting. This process uses the dominant protein found in bone, so type 1 collagen, to identify remains to species. And now this has mostly been used on larger fauna, so both domesticate and wild. But more recently, this has been applied on marine mammals, rodents, and fish. So, <laughs> gotta be done. So this recent work on amphibians was not only to see if the results could be useful in identifying remains from pinhole caves specifically, but also to become a bit more of a rule, so to identify amphibian remains in general. Fortunately, the results were so far promising, which is great news, I mean, for a variety of reasons. I mean, first of all, it's important to identify amphibian remains, as, as we've discussed plenty of times already earlier in the episode. I mean, they can tell us a lot about past environments, particularly with regards to climate, as, again, many amphibian species have very different tolerances for temperatures, you know, and they have very sort of specific environments that they thrive in. And also, to, as a result, to give us an idea of what the landscape nearby was like. So, for example, one of the species identified in Pinnell Cave was the Natajak toad, which is mostly associated with salt marsh environments. Other species identified included your humble common frog, you know, Rana temporaria, common toad, bufo bufo, been through it, and the moor frog, Rana arvalis, which has actually since become extinct in the, U- in, in the US, in the UK. <laughs> Secondly, this is also very important for Alex and all other zooarchaeologists that are very scared of small bones, as we now have a means of confirming species identification and thus getting a lot more information to compile a zooarchaeological record with. That is if you get the funding to do that. Yeah, of course. But I will say Zooms is really exciting and it's going to be, it'll be useful because, you know, that's the the funny thing about zooarchaeology and the difficult thing about zooarchaeology is unless you're someone who very specifically spends their whole life basically researching a specific species or a specific type of animal, if you're a zooarchaeologist, for the most part, you're kind of expected to know all the species, you know, and that can be difficult. I mean, as you do it over time, you can get a feel for species and it's not as bad. But, you know, every time, every so often you get thrown a curveball and having something like Zooms to be there to help identify, to support an identification is really important, especially for species that could make or break an interpretation. So the fact that amphibians seem to work well with zooms, because I also know from prior experience that zooms can be very finicky depending on the preservation of bone that you've got and, you know, all these other kind of elements, it can be tricky. But the fact that amphibian works on it is pretty good. Again, for people like me who are scared of small bones and don't like identifying them by eye, so, you know, they just need to do it on more fish, really. <laughs> just get yourself some nice, trusty hand lens and there's nothing you can't achieve. S- says the person who's been working on fish all day and is clearly deteriorating before our eyes. <laughs> but yeah, no, amphibians, I think, I-, I said this before, I'll say it again. Amphibians are as difficult as they are rewarding because they can't tell us a lot about past environments. It's, it's a bit of a challenge. 
at least I guess uh, we're lucky enough sort of in, in British zoo archaeology where like there aren't a lot of species to choose from. So you know, it's kind of a bit more restricted. <laughs> but but you, ha- you, can, you can have the irrational, slightly irrational fear that I have, which is you'll be working on a huge, like changes everything site that you don't know about. And you've got a species that either doesn't exist right now in the country or like did exist and like hasn't been seen in ages and you just can't identify it that's my like biggest fear you know yeah but like that that that, yes a lot of things would have to align for that to happen listen what if you are working on a site where you have the one bit of axolotl in all of british prehistory and you just don't know what it looks like, so you can't even identify it. That keeps me up at night, you know. Oh, you imagine that? Be like, oh, like a, a, a known in archaeology circles for have, having identified the only axolotl in the UK. Listen, when you work on British Iron Age sites and you're desperately trying to find an earlier chicken than the one that they've just identified, it really haunts you. This these kind of hypotheticals. I guess, <laughs> yeah. Oh, imagine just find like an oxalotl in an Iron Age ditch. <laughs> I have so many questions. <laughs> if that doesn't get me on in, in nature, then I don't know what will, let me tell you. Anyway, as we kind of drift into fantasy or nightmares in my case, I think it's probably time to end this episode and let and put Simone in a rest <laughs> after a very tough day with small bone. Um, so yeah, you know the drill. Uh, as we record this, Twitter seems to be deteriorating before our eyes as well. So for the time being, you can find us on Twitter at Animals. Maybe not so in the future, but hey, we'll let you know on the Archaeology Podcast Network website if we do end up having a new social media form we'll see but for now we will go down on the twitter ship i think we are wherever you get your podcasts of course so if you are downloading your podcasts at a certain site feel free to not only subscribe to us to begin with but also give us a like or a review i don't know what they do on the websites these days and you know tell your friends about us and let us know what else we should talk about most importantly, all hate mail to Tristan. And that too. All hate mail to Tristan. That's never going to change. It will always be that way, <laughs> regardless of the different social media platforms that exist in the future. But yeah, otherwise, no, Tristan. <laughs> Still not doing the right thing, the bufo bufo. Still not doing it. <laughs> We're going to do part two of their Star Wars episode. <laughs> What are you talking about? We haven't done pop culture in ages. We did just did amphibians. You fools! Please, please, we're begging you. We have we have no other outlet for this. But yeah, uh, other than that, that plead. We will see you next episode, where we will talk about even more annoying bones to work with. As always, it's been Alex with Patrick and Simona Falanga. We're gonna go take a nap now. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening.
listening to Archeo Animals. Please subscribe and rate the podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. You can find us on Twitter at Archeo Animals. Also, the views expressed on the podcast are those of ourselves, the hosts and guests, and do not necessarily represent those of our institution, employers, and the Archeology Podcast Network. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Laura Johnson. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.